This week, it's about building a hardware business. We talk with Jonathan Giorgino of Bino Electronics. He started with an idea. Now he's selling multi-unit enterprise deals, selling through distribution channels, and he's got a business. He's gonna talk us through every step of the way and answer our questions. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. I've had the privilege of working with Jonathan and his team at Bino uh, over the last few months. And so just full disclosure up front, Bino is a client of mine through my business, Kenny Consulting Group. Um, but because of that, we really were excited about getting to talk about selling to those first initial customers, selling through that first batch. We're gonna talk through that and I'm gonna just jump right into it here. Uh, so Sean, you wanna kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a few questions here for Jonathan because I want to learn more about what you're doing at your company. Can you just give us a broad overview of what is Bino? Yeah, first of all, so thank you very much, Harris and Sean, for having me part of your podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I'm Jonathan. I'm the founder of Bino. And uh, Bino is basically a company that I founded to create tools and products that I would like to use and share them with other people who also have a passionate for using good tools in their own product development. Um, and so we're a small group of just three people um, and, of course, some very qualified contractors that we can tap in when we need their expertise. Um, and we've been at this for about a year now. And so uh, our first product is the Bino Nova. We brought it to market uh, a few months ago. And uh, this is a, a USB host adapter that speaks mod, a variety of different protocols, including SPI, UART, I2C, uh, Dallas OneWire, and Atmel SingleWire, as well as uh, some other functionality. Um, and so basically, we're in the point of... Uh, getting this product to market where we're trying to, to grow our business in, in scale. So for somebody who might not be familiar with a host adapter, what is a host adapter? Sure, that's a, a fantastic question that is actually one of the most challenging things of selling host adapters is explaining what they are, um, who uses them, and you know why you would want to use them. So a host adapter is basically a device that you can use to connect your computer to some embedded system. So for example, you know, computers mostly have USB ports, but they don't have common protocols that are used in embedded systems like I2C or SPI or UART. And so you need this device that can you know, bridge the connection between your computer and these protocols. And so that's where a host adapter comes in. So it basically allows your computer to use its USB port to connect directly to an I2C bus or a SPI bus and interact with those devices on your embedded system. So this would be commonly used both in development and in production. In development, engineers would use this to like write their device drivers, uh, reverse engineer other systems, or even debug uh, issues with their code or their firmware that might not be, be behaving as expected. Um, they can use this device to kind of demystify the situation, see what's going on, and, and figure it out and get it resolved. In terms of production, these are used to like provision, uh, you know, for example, you can provision security keys onto cryptography chips or other secure devices. You can use it to preload some, you know, preset data into device EEPROM. Uh, you could also use it to add, for example, uh, audio or graph files to a spy flash memory um, that needs to happen on every single device that comes off your production line. So that's another place where host adapters are commonly found. And I, I'll give you a... Uh... Another one to throw in there, something that I've been working with for a current project with DigiKey, is you can actually turn it into a data acquisition device, a DAC device. And because you've, you, your team, has, have worked with Adafruit to get CircuitPython working with the Bino Nova, I can actually just import Adafruit libraries and just start communicating with sensors directly into, say, Python or whatever language on your computer. So it's actually working as a great low-cost data acquisition device right now. So I am that's a third thing that I don't know if a lot of people realize you can do with this, but for things like uh, collecting sensor data for machine learning or analysis, it's actually a really cool tool. Now, that's a good point, Sean. That's actually a, a fantastic use case for a product. We really like our integration with Adafruit's uh, CircuitPython. Um, that's worked out really well for a lot of our users. There's multiple ways to interact with our device, whether you want to use our GUI um, and just you know point and click on buttons, or you know use Python to script it, or you can even pop open a like UART terminal and just issue serial commands in you know human-readable ASCII. Uh, this device gives you multiple different ways to interact with your circuit under test. Yeah, it's been really good so far. Now, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you real quick, since this is a podcast, do you mind explaining the how to spell Bino and then the, just the background on Bino? And so in case someone's already 
listened so far and they want to buy one, where do they find it online? Where did the name come from? I thought the personal side of that was pretty neat. Sure. So Fino uh, is a Portuguese term of endearment, let's say. Um, and so it's spelled B-I-N-H-O, uh, which is unfortunately a terrible name for a company because of its challenges in pronunciation and spelling. Um, <laughs> but it works out well because it's a five-letter domain name. Um, so you can, of course, purchase your device if you're already sold at www.binho.io. That's B-I-N-H-O.io. Um, and yeah, the backstory is just it's a it's a little fun name that I gave to any of my personal projects that I've been working on over the past years. Oh, no, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on Binho Electronics. Now, I said that for years and years and years. And then so I finally got a, a product that I'm ready to, to bring to market. Well, what do I call it? Binho. Done. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't get much deeper than that or have any sort of serious meaning. Uh, but it's something that's kind of grown on me for a while, at least in terms of like uh, personal meaning. That's so, perfect. Go ahead, Sean. In, in this vein of trying to get your first customers, right? You've got this idea, you've got this device, we're going to make it. Um, what makes you think that people are going to buy said device? What was that thought process, right? You've got all these projects you've been working on, you come up with this host adapter and you're like, you know what, this is something people will buy. How did you come up with that product market fit? Sure, that's a fantastic question and it's deeply rooted in wishful thinking. Um, but beyond that, um, so my, my main motivation was that this is actually a combination of a variety of personal tools that I've developed over my past couple of years working on my own projects for, for my employer or for myself. Um, and so I finally got to the point where like I was combining them together and you know, I'm like, you know what? I think that there's something here. I really think that, you know, this has been really convenient for me. A few of my buddies were also working with it. I'm like, I'm going to turn this into a product and, you know, really polish off some of the missing features, uh, you know, create some good documentation for it. And I think that if that was, you know, fully around there, basically turn this hardware into more than just a piece of hardware, but it turned into a user experience. And I thought that if I could actually build that user experience around the device, uh, that there would be a market for it. Um, there's some similar products. You know, this is not the first host adapter to come to market. In fact, it might be one of the last. Um, and there's many other, you know, very, you know, formidable competitors in this field. But one thing that I felt that they were all, all lacking um, was in the, the user experience. They all had the capable hardware. They could all perform these functions. Um, but, you know, the tools weren't nearly as polished or, or as featureful as I had hoped. And so when I finally, you know, dug in on in doing this, I really wanted my focus to be around not necessarily the hardware. Of course, I want it to, you know, look great, be, you know, sleek and sexy and look good on your desk. Um, but at the end of the day, it needs to be, do you enjoy using it? Because nobody wants to use a tool that they don't enjoy using. Um, and so I really wanted to pour my effort into turning it into the user experience as the product and the hardware just enables that experience. Um, and so uh, basically the wishful thinking and the fact that this is a tool that I've been using and want to continue to use myself kind of gave me the motivation to think that there's a market out there for this. Um, but beyond that, um, validating it was it was uh, a challenge. Um, and I built my devices before I had sold any. So what makes it a unique user experience? What do you find that is different from the competitors' devices? Sure. So some of the things that I really focused on, um, first, the out-of-box experience. Uh, you know, engineering test tools don't necessarily come in, you know, good-looking packaging. A lot of times they're in, you know, unbranded boxes, maybe with a sticker at best. Um, and so we really, we looked at your first experience. When you get this in your hands and you open it up, you know, is it, does it feel nice? Our device comes in a reusable, you know, zipper case. It's got somewhat good branding, um, colorful graphics, um, and, you know, things that a lot of engineering tools don't necessarily come with. To, uh, out of the box. So that's our, our first way of, of kind of dealing with the user experience is, you know, hook them in right from the very beginning. The other thing we do in terms of the hardware is we've chosen a particularly low profile. We don't want a clunky piece of equipment to add to your other clunky test equipment. We want something that, that you, you know, doesn't take up a lot of desk space, is easy to work with, you can throw it in your backpack, and, you know, be convenient. Um, we also have gone to, or sorry, we've also chosen to go with a USB Type C connector, um, and also go with a, a smaller pitch, like 1.27 mm uh, ribbon cable, rather than the traditional larger, you know, uh, 2.54 mm. So basically, um, we try to optimize our hardware to, you know, be modern and, you know, be convenient, be low profile. Then when it comes to actually interacting with the device, one of the biggest challenges I've seen from the competitors is actually using them in an automated type way. Um, you know, you either need to be uh, a very competent software developer to be able to use their APIs and SDKs to automate their devices. Um, and that's typically a pain point when you're on an engineering team, or sorry, when you're on an electrical engineering team. A lot of times the resources that are, you know, really good at doing high level API integration live on a software development team. 
And so now you've got this decoupled development cycle where the electrical engineers need to interface with people on a different team in order to achieve what they're hoping to achieve. So with the Bino Nova, I've created uh, a variety of different ways to script it that are well within the competencies of a typical electrical engineering team. Uh, so the first way is uh, using UART. Almost every electrical engineer is very familiar with scripting and sending plain text ASCII UART commands through a serial terminal to a hardware device. And so they're familiar with that. So let's use that as an interface to automate testing. So that's available. The other one that's very common is uh, Python library. Again, right now, Python is very, you know, the programming language du jour of uh, hardware testing. And so we've got uh, our, our Python libraries, both our own interface, as well as the integration that we have with CircuitPython. Um, those are both options for that scripting. And lastly, of course, we have got a, a, a GUI tool. Um, one thing that, that I think that we do a little bit better than some of the competitions is our GUI is a single code base that uh, compiles for cross-platform. It runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux from the single code base. So it's the exact same interface, and the functionality is 100% parity across all three platforms. Uh, a lot of other tools, if they're cross-platform at all, have a separate software for each of the platforms, and so there's a little bit, you know, some nuances with using them. The interface is a little bit different, and sometimes even the core feature set differs a little bit. And so those are the things that we all really looked at when, you know, constructed our, our user experience around our product. Okay, so you've got sleek and sexy for your out-of-box experience, and you've got ease of use. These are your primary factors to make something that's um, desired by the community, right? Just to make sure I have that right. Awesome. And Jonathan, the other thing that you know is really clear to me when I hear you talk about this is that you understand this category extremely well. You understand this workflow extremely well. So in terms of sort of like a takeaway for someone who's listening who maybe has their own idea of something new, you know, I mean, it's fair to say that you've spent like many years in this space running into the constraints that other platforms have. Uh, you know, do you have any advice in terms of problems that you were experiencing and how that those were, was there enough friction there that you felt like, oh, I could make that easier? Or was it, you know, we talked about the kind of being like a modern tool for modern developers because a lot of people have frustrations in their job every day, but not all of them are able to start a successful company out of it. So how were you able to kind of go through that and then turn your experience into a business? Yeah, sure. So I, I think like one of the, the biggest things here is that like this is a tool and a product um, that I would use and it solves a problem that I face. So I don't necessarily, I wasn't ever bottlenecked by needing to understand the needs of the customer because I was actually my first customer and I built this for me to solve my challenges. Um, and so as part of knowing, you know, that there was a, a need for this, um, I really understood my competition. I have purchased over the years pretty much every singular device out there that's similar to this in hopes that it would answer, you know, answer my prayers and, you know, be the solution to the challenges I was facing. And I found some really good, really cool products along the way, um, but I didn't find like this one, you know, Swiss army knife that does everything exactly the way I wanted it to do, you know? Um, and so I think that that was really what set me up to be able to develop this product and, and execute it, um, or carry it out the way that I had in my head. Um, is basically, you know, four or five years of playing with products in this space, um, as well as working on projects that need this type of tool to succeed on their own. Um, so I, I think that being truly immersed in it um, is what really helped me to, to do that. Um, and during this process as well, I also would, you know, reach out to my network of colleagues who were mostly uh, firmware developers, software developers, or a few other electrical engineers as well. And, you know, try to get their unbiased opinions of, hey, what do you what do you think about this? Would this be helpful for you? What do you think is missing? Um, and try to collect that feedback throughout the development process. Um, so very early, um, once I had built up about 15 prototypes, I basically gave all but two of them out to people for free and just be like, hey, will you please use this and tell me what you think? Or tell me, you know, what does it solve for you? What do you like? What don't you like? How could it be better? And basically just try to get as much, you know, feedback as possible. Um, and thankfully, um, my, my network was, was super helpful in following up with me. You know, you get a tidbit from this engineer, a tidbit from this engineer, and the sum of that information is actually very helpful in determining what features people are really interested in, uh, what they'll pay for, and of course, what they don't need as well. Um, so I think that like that, you know, iterative process, along with, uh, you know, a few years of background in the space uh, really helped to, to build this business 
with a, a, a lean team um, because most of the decisions had already, you know, revealed themselves early in the process. So in the context of like your, your you know, famous lean startup, you've created MVPs or, you know, several MVPs and gave them out to your network. So if you can give us an idea, how big was this network of yours that you were able to talk to and get feedback from? Are we talking like a dozen of your engineering friends? Are we talking like a hundred people? So who, you know, you don't have to say who exactly, but can you give us like an order of magnitude of like, oh, I have this huge following and I gave out, you know, early BNO adapters to everybody. Or was it like, no, I've got like 10 engineering friends and they were crucial in helping turn this from an MVP into something that I could sell. Got it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as an engineer, I'm not the most social creature on earth. And so my, my network of, <laughs> of engineers is not in the hundreds. Um, I, basically, it was uh, a, a set of eight people working on it, various different companies, mostly here in the Bay Area, uh, but spread across the U.S., um, but all working in, in different industries of firmware, software, and electrical engineering. So uh, some of them come from wearables. Some of them come from self-driving cars. Um, you know, the some of them come from robotics. So uh, people dabbling in a variety of different projects, different use cases. Um, I made sure that they each had one set, uh, you know, of a Bino Nova and accessories on their desk, you know, to kind of play with whenever they saw the opportunity in their current projects and, and to get their feedback along the way. So good to know. Tapping into your network and having that network, even if it's eight people, is hugely important. And I know that Eric Reese, Reese talks about that in the book Lean Startup, right? right? Getting your MVP, getting that feedback. You know, even if you have to give them away is incredibly important. So good to know that that was, you know, essentially your first customers, even if they're not paying any dollars. Right, right. And it's also really good, you know, um, not going to say that friends can help you like with your ego, but they at least understand um, how to present <laughs> the information they want to share with you in a helpful and assertive way um, rather than just being as, you know, blunt as a, you know, a stranger could be. I've heard that people can sometimes be uncharitable on the internet. Sometimes, sometimes. having close relationships can help. And, you know, we, we've been so far, I think, a really interesting conversation. Some people might be listening to this and wondering, hey, this is talking about early sales. Why haven't you talked about cold calling? Why haven't you talked about distributors yet? Why haven't you talked about running advertisement campaigns on social media? And, you know, I think that just in our working together, something that's been really clear and I think why you've been able to get traction so quickly is because you spent a lot of time thinking about what you're making. I see companies that ha take different approaches to go to market and there's a lot of ways to build a business. I, I'm not criticizing or praising any one or the other, but the point is like at some point you have to spend the time to figure out like who are your customers and what are they gonna want? And sometimes companies do that speculatively with venture money or angel investment and guessing and, you know, in your case, you did it, you, you put that, you, you instead invested your time and you took, you know, years of your personal experience and then you rolled that into developing a product that you knew uh, or at least were more confident that would sell. And so that's really why I think we've spent a lot of time so far, because as we're going to start getting into the marketing uh, on your manufacturing and then, you know, eventually selling, when you got moving, things got moving pretty fast. And so if people start listening only to the second half of this episode and they don't understand why you were able to get traction so quickly, it's because of really what you spent the last few years doing and what we just spent the last 20 or so minutes talking about. And I, I do think that software is a different beast because there's, there's this um, popular notion of scaling up fast, even if it means giving stuff away free and then trying to figure out how to monetize on early users and customers of your whatever your product is. And I think that you know, probably works well for software, but hardware is a completely different beast. You know, you can't make changes super easily. Um, you can push firmware updates, but yo, if there's like a wrong resistor in that device, you know, I'm kind of screwed. Yeah, hardware is very unforgiving when it comes to making changes to physical items spread all across the world. Um, yeah. Uh, scaling hardware, you know, is an entire different conversation, but a very interesting uh, issue to deal with. Um, and I would say like the best thing that we've got is... Um, I, I've already lined up our, our supply chain in China with a manufacturer that has been super supportive, um, very helpful, and very flexible um, to help us grow and, and to be you know uh, as fast moving as, as possible. Um, and so I think that's really the best way um, to set a foundation for our scaling a hardware company is to rely on a, a good relationship with a manufacturer. Yeah. Um, speaking of manufacturing, what did you do to predict your sales for the first few batches? 
Sure. Um, so again, I'm going to rely heavily on wishful thinking. My, basically, um, the first batch size was actually determined by MOQ sizes of the varying custom components we were using. Um, hmm. So basically, um, I needed to get you know the, the custom aluminum enclosure is a custom design for, for our product. Um, and as well as the uh, zipper case is, is uh, custom uh, as well. And so basically, no, none of those factories were interested in producing less than 100. All right, so we're building 100. Um, that's how I basically decided, okay, that's our first, our first uh, batch that we're building here um, in the USA um, was that quantity. Um, and then I also figured that that would buy us enough time to get our manufacturing and supply chain set up within China entirely. So, you know, it would be awesome if, you know, my first month of having 100 and they all sold, that'd be great. And then we face a new problem of, oh, no, I'm out of inventory for a while. Um, but meanwhile, knowing that I was going to start with 100, that would buy me at least, you know, two to three months to get a supply chain set up. So that way I could already forecast for my next order um, and have that come in, um, you know, at the, at the right time. Um, and I actually executed on that very well. We got down to just two units left when our first batch of... Uh, fully, you know, uh, supply chain built uh, supply arrived. And so um, looking back in hindsight, that was an incredible home run um, that, that basically fell into place by accident. That's awesome. Um, and you decided to do manufacturing in the U.S. initially for the small batch. Was it easier to find and do small batch? Is that why you did it? Uh, so we did small batch here in the U.S. mostly for um, having tight quality control uh, we wanted to be very much in the loop on everything. This was the first time working with a lot of those vendors. Um, so we wanted to, you know, make sure that like every single unit had, you know, a fine tooth comb going through everything um, and that everything was perfect. This is, you know, we're building our brand and our reputation and we need to make sure that every single item uh, that's shipping out of our doors, going to our customers, works perfectly and looks good and, you know, is exactly the way we want it. And so that's why we chose to do the 100 here uh, in the Bay Area. Um, in that, mean, in that same time, though, you know, we haven't given up our focus on quality by shifting it to, to China. Um, we use that as an opportunity to, to really vet uh, a Chinese supply chain. I, I went to Shenzhen. I met with both my, my local CM there and our sub-vendors. Uh, I met them personally. I had meetings with them, and we really talked about what quality means to Bino and why that's important for our business. And so having that, that, you know, that time to not have to rush to China to build the initial lot uh, allowed us to set up a supply chain that we have trust in. They understand what our needs are and are they're over there. You know, being our our what's a good term for it? Our arbitrator of quality. They're there representing us with our sub vendors and ensuring that they don't ship anything that we wouldn't approve because they they now understand uh, what our quality expectations are. And how much did you learn by doing it in the U.S. because you had that control? So one of the things that I, I, I think that is really important to do, whether this is your own product or you're working for somebody else, is always build your first boards. Always. Build them by hand. Sure, sometimes that's on, if you're building, you know, you've got a motherboard, okay, that's going to be a challenging thing. But I really recommend building your first boards by hand because you will understand if there is any problem whatsoever, if there's anything that can be improved, it will reveal itself when you build them by hand. Um, and so... Uh, I built, you know, 10 by hand. I didn't build 100 by hand. I built my first 10 by hand just to go through and really become intimately familiar with the design. You know, assemble the whole product by hand. You'll be, you'll, you'll know it inside and out and you'll find everything that you want to improve about it. Um, whereas if you're not the person touching it, you might not find these problems till later or you might not see these opportunities until it's too late. Um, and so I really recommend doing that first. And so that's part of the reason why we, you know, we did it here. And then I have all this knowledge of how do I build them. And then the easiest way to convey that knowledge is to show somebody in person how to do everything rather than create all the documentation. So that's another reason that, that led into the, okay, let's build our 100 units here. Um, just because it was easy to train everybody and, and show them what the expectations were. Um, and that also then allows for the time to create adequate documentation. You know, you can catch the common errors uh, or any mistakes in manufacturing, document them, and then already present them to our, our CM in China who's going to be building this. Like, oh, be careful about this. We see this happens. Oh, watch out for this. This happens. Um, and so um, you only gain that by, by being hands-on and doing it locally. And until you've done that, um, if you go direct to China, you're almost playing with fire. And I've heard of people doing that. And sometimes sometimes they, they win if they, you know, oh, we think we're going to sell 10,000 units, and sometimes it works out. But I've also heard of cases where, you know, they go to China, they build 10,000 units and there's not 10,000 customers and that is unfortunate. Or there's a bug, right? There's, you know, you miss that resistor and 
that right. hurts for some Now you have 10,000 small units of garbage. Yeah, 10,000 <laughs> paperweights. Yes. That's right. <laughs> and, and Jonathan, this quality is important to your end user. And so I think an important distinction here, because you're doing this really kind of old school, bootstrapping, self-funding, building the business up, you know, you didn't spend six months building like an interactive website with, you know, VR and integrated graphics and an experience. You know, I mean, you, you took the time that you had and you spent it on knowing something that would matter to your customers. Because in this case, you know, a host adapter is really important to an engineer's workflow. Right. And so like if someone has a business that's in like food and beverage and they're focused on quality, it's like, well, that better taste good. Right. And so I think each person is going to have their own like version of that. But in your case, knowing all the components, knowing that they're working, that was a deal. You know, your customers would not have a lot of uh, tolerance for failure. Right. I mean, they need that host adapter to drop right in and work with whatever product they're producing or developing in house. And so, you know, I think. Is it fair to say that, that 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 that's the case? You know, it's not just that you're like a really detail-oriented engineer, but like you had to get it right? No, that's absolutely right. This is something that has to get right because if there's one thing probably universal across engineers, they don't want to use tools that are painful or cause them a distraction from actually working on the product that they're trying to develop. And so it, it needs to be a streamlined experience. You plug it in, it just works, and you need to be able to trust your tools. And if you can't trust your tools, it's not worth anything. Um, and so that's why like quality, especially in the very beginning, and we're an unknown brand, you know, we're, we're new to the scene, people need to trust us, and the best way to gain trust is to immediately present a, a high quality product. And I think Harris brings up a really good point too. You didn't make this crazy flashy website with all this multimedia stuff, which by the way, I can't stand when sites have those videos playing in the background that are completely unnecessary and just hogging my bandwidth. But that aside, I think you have a very well done site. It's very clean. I can find information easily and I can click on the product, view the, view the features of the product, and then immediately jump to my support to view, you know, not just your frequently asked questions, but also, you know, two, three clicks, I'm into the API and it's very nicely laid out. Can you give listeners an idea of what tools you used? I mean, is that a custom built website or are you leaning on frameworks that are already out there to put that site together? And if so, what do you recommend? Sure, I can actually talk a lot about this. So the first thing I recommend is to meet a guy named Forrest, who is, uh, working for me. He is fantastic. He has not only all these ideas, but he can implement them. So he's he's both the Bino mechanical engineer and the Bino designer, like both industrial designer. He does motion graphics. He does it all. He's got a great eye for it and he can implement his vision incredibly. And so our, our website is actually built on Shopify, um, but it's entirely customized um, by Forrest and his, his graphic capabilities. Um, he's just done an absolutely fantastic job for us. Uh, when it comes to the product support um, support portal, that's done using Gitbook, um, which I think is an absolutely fantastic framework for, for doing this. You know, you find a lot of um, support terminals that are kind of built on like, uh, say like FAQs to some extent, or, you know, article based. Um, and, I, and I found that that doesn't really work well for this type of product where you kind of need like a flowing manual almost to some extent. And so, um, this is actually a, a, a playbook that I, or a play from Salier's playbook. They use Gitbook for their support terminal and have gotten incredibly good feedback from their customer base. And I also like it. It's very easy to search and it's well organized. And so when I when I started my own, I'm like, I'm going to do this too. Um, and so I, I use that. And um, for publicly viewable books, it's actually free, um, which you can't beat that because you see a lot of you know like uh, Zendesk and the other uh, popular uh, help portals. Uh, are charging an arm and a leg for small companies to, to get these portals set up. Um, and this Gitbook is entirely free for, for public public viewable documentation. Uh, so it was a no-brainer to go with that. And, and so far, the feedback has been uh, very positive. So I would highly recommend for anybody that needs a similar solution uh, to check them out. And I, as somebody, I, I wrote a, a, how, I, how I met you initially is I wrote a few articles for Salier on Gitbook. And I've had a few people doing pull requests saying like, oh, hey, here's a minor you know, here's a minor edit. We found, you know, this, it should be this word. And because it's built into GitHub as the back end, they can just do a simple pull request or a recommendation or file an issue and you just get notified and you can fix it like that without having to know a whole bunch of like HTML stuff. So uh, I've had a few minor issues with, with Gitbook and the way some, way there's some of their syncing works, but overall I think it's a great experience. So uh, 
yes, I, I'm with you on Gitbook for your documentation and support portal. Nice, yeah. I, I think it's it's an unsung hero. Um, it seems like it's very common for documenting software products, uh, but there aren't very many people using it outside of that domain. Yeah, I guess it's sort of like GitHub, right? It was originally intended for software, and now people are like, oh, you can check anything in here. So That's I've right. got you know all of my <laughs> hardware projects are on GitHub. <laughs> so you've got you've got the product. You focused on quality. You've got feedback from your eight people and you know you've made adjustments your tweaks you're ready to go you've got your page you've got shopify which handles your e-commerce and your product features with all the pretty pictures and you've got your support backend so you're ready to launch what do you now do to market the nova what what were you doing up to this point to market the nova and what have you done since to help get the word out that hey this thing's for sale now Sure. Um, so that was a great question because uh, the three of us were all engineers. And so when it comes to marketing, even the sum of everything is still a very small number of what we're uh, able to come up with to do. Um, so we started just with a, a few uh, cold, cold emails, you know, LinkedIn, just reaching out to, to people, to friends of friends, you know, just try to get some activity around uh, around us. And we also sent some cold emails to some distributors that we'd like to work with. Um, of course, the, the response rate was, was relatively low from, from everybody involved. Um, and so actually, that's when I took the opportunity to reach out to Sean to see if he was available for some help. Um, and unfortunately, he wasn't. But fortunately, he connected me with Harris. Um, and so um, with his, his ad advising uh, and, and a lot of other you know, help on many topics, um, we were put, able to put together a, a pretty good marketing strategy to, to build this up from, from almost nothing to where we're at today. And part of that story, Jonathan, too, is, you know, your PR work on reaching out and getting published and covered by other people. So do you want to maybe speak to that as well? Because I think that was like a big, um, that really moved the needle for you in the beginning, too, is just getting the word out to the right people. Yeah. So um, on the topic of getting like some PR, um, one of the things that I did was I reached out to some of the writers for the Hackster blog and got them you know a, a, a device to review uh, and to both you know write a review about as well as do like a sample project or you know a tutorial um, and post it both on uh, hackster as well as instructables um, and th those were great they continue to drive traffic to the site even to this day so it's like a gift that keeps on giving um, and then uh, one of the the biggest blips on our radar that, that basically came together by some luck um, was that I one of my cold emails that I sent out was to Chris Gamble at the amp hour uh, to let them know that, hey, we exist and maybe your your audience would be interested in, in hearing about us. You know, I had no idea where that would take me. I know he, he's pretty well connected in the hardware scene. He's got a lot of followers. Um, and, and it went silent for, you know, a couple weeks. Uh, but next thing you know, he, he reaches back out, asks me a couple questions and, and wants to know when I'm available to be on the show. And I'm like, well, this is incredible. I thought maybe you would just plug me or something. Um, but to have the opportunity to, to talk with him on the Amp Hour was just fantastic. Um, and so uh, I think that episode was, was sometime uh, October 16th or, or somewhere in that, in that week. Um, and that was just an absolutely wonderful opportunity uh, to get Bino out there to all of his followers. Um, and so that was really what broke the ice for us. We had uh, significant sales for weeks um, after my appearance there. And that, that really, I think, put us on the map for um, a lot of other places. And in particular, when we finally reached out to DigiKey, it, they mentioned that they were already aware of us from our appearance on, on the Amp Hour. And so... Uh, that was really a, a turning point in, in the early days of the, the company sales. A lot of early founders, they want to be covered everywhere, right? They're like, hey, you know, I have this product that's going to change the world. I should be in the Wall Street Journal. I should be in the New York Times. But I think, you know, the story here is that Hackster, the Amp Hour, you know, these are niche, you know, really industry specific places, watering holes where your customers are, you know. And so you started with going to the places that you go for news to see if they would be interested to increase your brand awareness, not with the whole world, you know, not getting a billboard in Times Square, but just with the right types of folks. And that that sort of laid some runway for you um, to get to get going from there. And so, you know, I think that that sort of modest expectation of like, look, I think something is interesting to me. And I think people who cover this electronic space will be interested in covering it, too. That sounds like that was like a really good way to get out of the gate without sort of expecting, look, I'm changing the world. I just invented fire. Like everyone come talk about me. That's, that's absolutely right. Like the, the audience and, and the target customer for a USB host adapter is, is very limited and, and niche. Um, and so one of the things that's actually most challenging is to reach that particular customer. 
um, and not only to reach them, but reach them at the right time. Because you know, this is a device that you know you need it for a project, and then it might be a year or two before you either you know need to invest in a similar tool, a new tool, um, or to dust the old one back off and, and pull that back up again. Um, so you know, one of the, the challenges is to find out you know how do we reach this very narrow customer segment. So you mentioned that the being on the podcast, being on the Ampower, had worked really well for you. Of the things that you've done to market it, both you know, reaching out, cold cold emailing, you know, things that you've written on the website, any content stuff, what what's worked well and what hasn't? Sure. Um, so what's worked well has been uh, either direct introductions, you know, word of mouth, um, and cold emails out to people um, that look like they would be in our target audience. Um, those have gone pretty well. What hasn't worked well? Uh, social media ads don't really land very well. Um, even LinkedIn targeting ads um, did not really work out very well for us either. Um, Google AdSense has has been okay. I think that there's some optimization which can be done perpetually to fine-tune the performance of those ads. Um, they, they perform all right, um, but I think that that just means that we, we've got more to, to figure out about how do we, we target and get in front of the right people. Um, Again, though, because we're a self-funded bootstrapped company, um, our marketing budget is limited and basically, you know, needs to start paying for itself almost immediately. You know, we're not we're not venture funded and be able to burn, you know, $50,000 immediately just to, you know, do an A-B test to find out, oh, should we go in this direction or that direction? Unfortunately, we've got to make sure everything, you know, has some sort of return along the way or, or we're going to find ourselves in a, in a tough situation quickly. So you say? Are you saying that word of mouth, word of mouth, and cold emailing has worked the best for you so far? That's yes. Um, or if I can find somebody who will introduce me to somebody else, like mm, okay, um, that that has worked out pretty well. Excellent. Good to know. Um, how well has the, some of the stuff on the site worked? Have Have you found any organic growth through people just stumbling across the Binio site when they're searching for something, something host adapter, scripting, whatever? Like, how's that SEO performing? I know. I don't know if you've put any M effort into it specifically, but are you finding any organic growth from just people searching on Google? We, we are actually finding uh, pretty good organic growth from, from Google. It, it at least matches um, everything that we've ever done for, for AdSense. Even running ads, we still gain more traffic from uh, organic search, um, which is, is good to know. Um, I think that there's more that we could be doing for, for SEO optimization. Uh, unfortunately, it's like a full-time job to, to really tweak that um, and there's been bigger fish to fry um, throughout this last couple months. How does the organic growth to your site compared to traffic you're getting from some of what I call project sharing sites, your hacksters, your instructables and whatnot? Got it. So uh, organic traffic is, is a little bit higher than all of our referrals. Um, although recently, um, you know, we've recently gained a number of, of distributors both in the US and internationally. Um, and uh, we see a lot of traffic coming in inbound from them, probably if they're looking at data sheets or looking for more information about the company. Um, we see a fair amount that, that even if they don't ultimately buy from us, maybe they buy from their local distributor. Um, we see a lot of traffic coming in from, from those websites as well. Speaking of distributors, um, have you are you finding that more sales are going out through distributors than your own site right now? Right now, yes. Um, over the last few weeks, um, because we've grown our, our distributor network significantly, um, we actually move a significant volume through distributors, um, which is fantastic. Um, it definitely takes the load off of me um, because we ship from our office here, which means I pack and ship. Um, whereas if the bulk of the quantity is going through distributors, um, that means I'm just putting them in one big box and sending it out once um, rather than you know, doing a whole bunch of times. Um, and so for now, we're, we're very happy to, to grow through our distribution chain, our, our our business model is set up in a way that uh, we've allowed for a good channel margin so that our business can grow just fine uh, and our distributors can also grow based on the, the margin that we've allowed for them in that sales. And so it's really a win-win situation because that allows me and our small team to focus on the engineering things and designing new products that we really want to be focused on uh, while we can grow our business through um, local distributors, which is also a pretty good experience for the customers as well. Yep, I, and I know I've seen the video on Adafruit, DigiKey, and a few other places. So, yeah, you guys have reached out to a number of distributors, and it's really cool to see it on there. Yeah, I also feel the same. It's really cool to see my product show up in places. <laughs> yep, and I know that you know some of your big distributors, like, and go, going back to what we were talking about, um, Harris mentioned about you know targeting this niche audience. I see that you know your your amp hour, your hackster, 
your hackadays, those seem to target your what I call like that hacker community. You know, not in the sense of like cracking computer security, but people like I'm tinkering with devices kind of on my own time for fun, maybe for profit, versus your professional world and going in through that, you know, let's get on Hackster, let's get on the Amp Hour. The people in that prof in the professional world still a lot of times read those as news sources. So, you know, I, I think that getting into Adafruit is a good way to start, but then you start seeing it in your DigiKeys and your professional people start seeing it. Now, DigiKeys is a little tougher to navigate because it is so many different SKUs, right? It's, you know, it might get buried, but it's starting to look in more and more like this professional tool that a lot of different people can use instead of just, you know, you're targeting your a lot of your communication and marketing just on your, your niche areas because they're low barrier to entry to get into than saying like, oh, I'm going to get into the next IEEE uh, article, right? Like that's a little, that's a little tougher. That, that's absolutely so. right. The other thing that like, you know, starting by kind of targeting the maker and enthusiast community is that, you know, they're a very vocal community. They're all talking with each other. They're very active. Um, and so, you know, just, just, you know, getting a few people's attention there, the word spreads pretty quickly. They, you know, they're definitely a, a group of people that would be, uh, suited with the definition of early adopters. They're always looking for new stuff. And so they're, they're uh, an audience that's very easy to reach um, in, in terms of a, a new product coming to market. They're the first ones to talk to. When it comes to marketing strictly to like professionals um, and, and through, you know, enterprise type of, of think situations like, uh, you know, trade shows and conferences um, or, or getting into some of the, you know, the bigger stuff, uh, not only is it somewhat expensive, but the lead times to get into those, you know, into those venues um, is challenging, especially with the bureaucracy involved to, to get that um, it, it somewhat is, is a little bit too much for just a small team in, in our current state. Yeah, absolutely. So go ahead, Harris. Jonathan, you, you talked about the, uh, the fact that working with distributors makes sense for your business model because you're a pretty small team. You're focusing on developer tools that you understand really well. And so, you know, you don't necessarily anticipate having like a boiler room of 20 salespeople working the phones all day. Like that's not necessarily your vision for what you're trying to build this company out to be. That's uh, right. And, and so distributors fit into that. Is, is that fair? That's absolutely fair. What we want to do is we want to be, you know, a, a lean, mean team of, of engineers. We, of course, do want to provide rock star customer support. And we will always be there. Even if you purchase through a distributor, you reach out to Bino. We are more than happy to help solve any issues that you're coming into. Or if you've got any questions about, like, is the device good for this or that or, or whatever the use case you have in mind, we're certainly here and we want to offer that support. Um, but we don't want to be, uh, you know, a, a big sales heavy organization. Yeah. And so can you expand on sort of what that because that's sometimes that's emotional i think for founders they think like well they should just buy from us and a distributor is competing with us and a distributor is stealing sales from us and, and then sometimes people get uh, the the process of signing with distributors can also be emotional where maybe it, it doesn't happen as quickly as they want or maybe they have some specific requests so can you just talk about what that was like just like on a personal level um how your strategy was going to determine your go-to-market direct versus channels and then when you decided to go through channels, what, what was that like, just that personal journey? And then when you got those first big orders, what was that like? Because I think sometimes that's something people hear about, but they've never been through it. And only when you've been through it, I think, do you really understand the process? Sure. Um, so, I mean, from the very beginning, I've always been very open-minded, mostly because like the, the channels that this product is being sold through uh, are places that I've bought from in the past. So like, you know, being on Adafruit is cool because I buy stuff from there. And, you know, being on DigiKey is cool because I buy stuff from there. And, like, I know that and I've, I've used it for years. And so, like, from a personal uh, point of view, I feel like it's very validating. Like, oh, look, these places also want to sell my product with their other cool products. Um, so I, I don't have any aversion to, to be like, oh, I don't want them to sell my stuff. I want to, I just want to sell directly. No, no, no. That's not how I feel at all. Like, I think that it's almost uh, an honor to some extent to have a product that has made it into their, these catalogs. Um, uh, along those same lines, I see that these organizations are bringing a lot of value beyond what I can even bring through our limited resources at Bino. So like, for example, Adafruit, they run their own advertising. They have their own customer outreach programs. They, you know, they have their own, you know, a whole bunch of stuff that's going on that now Bino is in that mix and I can be here doing engineering things. And I don't even have to think about it. They're doing it. Same with DigiKey, you know? My product is in their catalog now, and I'm just over here running the company, doing engineering things, and they're working on sharing it with all of their customer base. And so I think that there's a ton of value there. You know, I know what it costs to run social media ads, to run Google AdSense, um, and I know how much our distributors get paid for each unit sold. And I actually think that I would rather 
sell through distributors than give my money to Google or Facebook. Um, so, I mean, it's just kind of like I'd rather help them grow their businesses than to just contribute more uh, to competing on, you know, auctioned off ad spaces and clicks. Um, per- perhaps that's a, a somewhat terrible point of view, but I come from an engineering world, not a marketing world. Um, and so that's my personal opinion uh, of working with distributors. Now, the one thing that I do want to keep in mind um, is I don't want it to dry up our direct sales entirely, mostly because I want to stay closely involved with our customer. And the way to stay involved is to operate the, you know, the whole process from start to finish, you know, from pre-sales, sales, and post-sales service and support. I want to be there for that whole process. Now, thankfully, you know, we've made it determined that we're going to do our support regardless of where a customer has purchased their product from, whether it's direct or from a distributor, we will support them directly um, to maintain that customer relationship. Um, but still, it's important to have the pre-sales questions and all that other stuff with uh, direct with consumers as well. Like they should be comfortable you know, to look at our website and reach out and be like, oh, I want to engage with them, ask them questions directly. I don't want to go find their distributor. I just you know, want to reduce the number of middlemen here and, and go direct to the source. And so we want to maintain that direct channel to, to keep that connection with our customers because that's the only way that we're going to continue to you know, release innovative new products that solve customer problems is if we know what they're using them for and what challenges they face going forward. So I want to go back through and make sure I've understood what that process looked like so anybody listening can see what happened and how you were able to get that momentum going with your sales that you have now. So you focused on quality because hardware, always good. You reached out to your eight to whatever, right? Eight to 10, a dozen, you know, order of magnitude 10, let's say, close friends to say, hey, here's a device, we're working on it. Here's an early prototype. Please give me feedback. Use that, incorporated it. You manufactured in the US, which is interesting because I still hear a lot of people like, oh, you got to get set up in China initially to get manufacturing going. No, you specifically kept in the US so you could control quality as these devices were coming out. And then you produced maybe 100. And then from there, you found that cold emails, ref- like referrals from people to say like, oh, int- introducing some somebody to you, um, as well as you said social media didn't work and Google ads were only okay. Um, am I missing something in there in the marketing? I mean, that's pretty much it. That and, you know, just kind of like reach out to people, reach out to people that would be considered like influencers. I know it's kind of weird when it comes to hardware. There's not like these Instagram models that are showing their host adapters <laughs> off. Uh, it's a different type of influencer. Um, but to identify them and, you know, to reach out and to see where that leads, you know, because either they'll help you either directly or they can, you know, refer you to somebody who couldn't help you or, or might be looking for something like that. And so kind of like chase those those down to where they ultimately land. You know, some go nowhere, but others, you know, uh, you know, can lead to distributors or, you know, consultants um, that are very helpful in growing your business. Ex- excellent. And, and you know, getting on people's podcasts, like reaching out to Chris Gamble to be on the Amp Hour worked very well for you. That's You're right. To get some, some customers from that. So yeah, that's, that's good to know that that's what worked really well on the marketing side and that, you know, you're advertising, you know, I think a lot of people are recognizing what social media and Google ads look like. And it's, it's kind of a, a, you know, noisy place right now. So that's good to know that those have all worked for you on the marketing side and getting your initial customers and for shipping and handling, you were, you you ship basically out of your office there if somebody places an order directly on your site, right? That's correct. We, we do all of our shipping from our office here in California, um, mostly because we want to offer a great shipping experience. We don't just want it to be, oh, you get this and you know it's, it's flat two-day shipping or whatever. No, you can get this. And if you want overnight shipping, you're going to get overnight shipping. It's going to ship same day and it's going to arrive to you the next morning because it's a professional tool. Of course, it's, it's priced at a point where enthusiasts can, can probably consider adding it to their toolbox as well. Um, but it's a professional tool, and sometimes you need a tool to solve your problem now. You don't need it next week. You need it now. And so we want to make sure that we're available for that because in, in the very beginning, the actual first customer experience they have is the purchasing process. And so we want that to also be representative of all the rest of the you know, customer experience that we've focused really hard on, on designing into the product itself. We want to continue that into the purchasing process. And so that's why we ship right from here, um, same day. Excellent. And then you really like working with distributors as well. Like even though you, you can do all the shipping and handling yourself, you, you're saying that distributors are, are helping you scale, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, as I talked about a little bit before, they do a great job of reaching their customer base and representing our best interest. Through them, we grow mutually. Uh, like for example, um, Core Electronics in Australia. I think it makes a lot of sense to have some local inventory in that region of the world, so not everybody that wants one needs to pay for shipping from California to Australia. I think it makes a ton of sense uh, for you know 
uh, environmental reasons, financial reasons. There's, there's, there's a lot of reasons why it's in everybody's best interest that they purchase through a local distributor. Um, and I think that that's fantastic that I, I was able to make it into their catalog to better serve uh, their customers in that region. Yeah, that's awesome. And finally, it sounds like uh, you started by targeting the, you know, the enthusiast maker, DIY hacker world first, because it's easy to get into their, what I call their community, right? People are talking about it, you know, they're sharing stuff with each other. It's just an, you know, easier way to get in there, assuming you've got a good tool. If you don't have a good tool, you know, I think they'll call you out pretty fast. But yes. If yes. you have a good tool, yeah, you'll know real quick. That's right. And I also think like it's really good to have those types of folks as early customers because they want to give feedback. They want to be involved. They have all this energy to devote to electronics and, and you know making new stuff. And this is new stuff, and they're excited. And like as part of being in that community, we've gotten some excellent feedback from our initial customer base. Uh, fantastic advice. Fantastic, you know, feedback all around the board for from everything from our packaging to our software to our API, um, and so like it's really great to be involved in that community. Jonathan, it seems like where you're growing now with the business is that you're getting those initial sales out, but that you're getting a lot more traction. Do you want to talk about the enterprise sales side at all in terms of maybe a customer? You don't need to give specific names, but bigger companies that are noticing, maybe bigger companies that purchased one unit and then came back and purchased multiple units. And because I think a lot of people are interested in scaling their business in that way, too, and multi-unit sales. Yeah, sure. So it has been interesting. I would say that, you know, the majority of our customers for the for the past, you know, for, I'd say the majority of our customers over the first few months uh, were mostly individual enthusiasts or, or you know, maybe uh, engineers at like small contracting firms, you know, two or three engineers working together. Um, but, you know, over the past couple months, we've seen sales grow to, to some pretty big name corporations um, that are, you know, they're purchasing, you know, one, two, or maybe three. Um, and, and that's been exciting to, to start seeing like that we're making our way in, in, into big enterprise companies. Um, and, and very recently, we've seen uh, our first wave of repeat business where these same customers are coming back and, and they're buying in larger quantities. Um, and so that's fantastic, both fi financial reasons, but also the, the validation that it means that they're enjoying this tool and they found that this tool is solving their problems or their challenges that they're facing and that more of them would help them solve them better and faster. Um, so that, that's been fantastic for us uh, to start getting that type of traction in with these, these larger customers. That's awesome. So I think that wraps it up. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I learned a ton about your success story and how you got to where you are today. And it's it's been really cool to look at your journey and see how far you've come. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. It's always fun to talk shop and hang out with you guys. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine. <laughs>